0: Grid Forward Chats is supported by iTron. Thanks for your support to make these discussions possible. Welcome to the next edition of Grid Forward Chats. I'm Bryce Yonker with Grid Forward. In this session, we talk with Patty Poppy, the CEO of PG&E. Pacific Gas and Electric hasn't had its shortage of very interesting challenges over the last recent years. And Patty gets real with us about how they're addressing resiliency, applying modernization and working to evolve the way that their organization functions. Take a listen. Patty, thanks for being on with us. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up there at the helm of the utility?
1: Yeah, you bet. Bryce, it's great to be with you. Um, I have been at PG&E now almost uh, well over a year and a half time is uh, flying by, but um, I joined at the beginning of 2021, going on uh, two years now. Um, I came here from Michigan where I was CEO of CMS Energy. Uh, that was my hometown utility. My dad retired from that company. I lived two doors down from him. Uh, and uh, But when we got the call from uh, pg and I knew that it was a um, it required a special, I think, kind of leadership and experience. And I, my heart ached for the people uh, who worked for pg and the people who are served by PG&E that they deserved better. And so uh, I was, um, you know, compelled by the challenge to come out and tr- try and, and do my best to make a difference. And, and so we hope that we're on track to do just that.
0: Great. Well, welcome to the the role there. We've we've had a lot of folks that have been on the series with us that joined in the in the middle of the pandemic, which, you know, we're not through all the way. Um, so I still ask this question, you know, how are you? How are the folks there at the organization? How are you doing?
1: Well, it's really interesting. My, you know, when I was in Michigan working through the pandemic, it was like the most important thing. And when I got to pg e it felt like there were even more important things, believe it or not, uh, with the challenge of wildfire and the challenge of the company going through bankruptcy and getting back on its feet. The pandemic was just one of the challenges that the people of pg and have so um, faithfully worked through. And I would say we do feel like uh, we've made progress through the pandemic, but more importantly, we are making progress uh, through some very important issues and challenges that the company has been facing.
0: So I think our community knows about PG&E, but you know, I'll ask the proverbial question. Can you tell us a little bit about, I guess we'll call it your service territory, but your customers and the communities that you serve, who, who, are, who are the people that you work with, the people that you serve?
1: Yeah, you bet. We serve 16 million people uh, in the state of California across 70,000 square miles covering Northern and central part of the state. Uh, I like to say from Bernie to Bakersfield, you have to know California to know where Bernie is, but it's way up there almost at the Oregon border. Um, And uh, if you've heard anything, and if your listeners have heard anything about PG&E in the recent years, it's certainly been a challenging time. Um, You know, people have lost everything and wildfire, Uh, as well as recovering from the San Bruno incident has been a really tough era for PG&E. And so, you know, at this time, we're very much focused. We feel privileged to serve our friends, our families, and our neighbors. We've uh, divided the company up into five regions so that we can be more uh, connected to our hometowns. And we've established a purpose for us as a company that we are delivering for our hometowns, serving our planet, and leading with love. And I think that uh, purpose is gonna be really what uh, transforms uh, PG&E from uh, the challenging years to a whole new era and a new chapter of our company's history.
0: And then maybe as another context setting question, there's just so much in motion in the industry. Um, change seems to be afoot at almost every corner. How, all, how are you all working to set your priorities? and maybe with regards to grid modernization, how do those efforts feed into the, the efforts that you all are putting at the top of the list?
1: Well, you know this is another reason I came to PG&;E because there's no doubt we are on the front line of experiencing climate change but have ex- and as a result have ex- extraordinarily high ambitions as a state to really transform um, our economy. Uh, decarbonize our economy, and so obviously the energy industry and our grid specifically have a big role to play in that. And I find that very exciting. We, you know, I like to say that um, if Thomas Edison came back and and visited with me in one of our substations today, he'd recognize most of the stuff. <laughs> but I also like to say not for long, uh, understanding that at one time the wires in PG&E's service area and everywhere across the globe were pathway to prosperity. These wires brought the modern society to our most rural corners of our communities. But today those same wires, which were so valuable to our economy and to the livelihoods of people uh, are now a hazard. And so we actually have to both reimagine the role that um, uh, how to maybe not have wireless power, but a lot less wires. And how to de-risk our system and yet still provide energy to people when and where they want it, Um, combined with the challenges that we're seeing in California with peak demand and how our our peak demand exceeds our peak supply. And that creates a, a a whole other set of challenges that interestingly end up leading to the same set of solutions, which I'll be happy to talk about. But uh, certainly things like battery storage and microgrids and distributed resources are all a very, very important part of de-risking our system from the risk of fire and providing peak supply on hot summer days.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about all those. But let's talk a little bit about kind of the macro dynamics. California's out with a uh, Fully decarbonized uh, grid vision, as as a number of jurisdictions in the West, whether it's states or you know cities or or um, utilities themselves or other um, stakeholders, um, can you talk a little bit about what PGD is doing with you know making sure that that transition can be as smooth as one as possible, right? You're trekking towards an ambitious objective. How is it? How can it be a successful outcome?
1: Well, first. Um, I'll just clarify what our ambition is. Um, we, we set out our climate positive um, ambitions earlier this year to be net zero by 2040, but climate positive by 2050. And what that means is that we'll take more greenhouse gases um, out of the environment than we emit by 2050. But I also want to remind people that in the near term, in the next eight years, our intention is to reduce our GHG emissions by 50% for scope one and two, and 25% for scope three. There's been very few people who have uh, set out scope three ambitions, but they're very important because it's an important part of the mix. And so those are our ambitions. How we'll do that is certainly by decarbonizing our electric system, though I will um Uh, share with you, and you might be surprised that last year, the electricity we delivered was 93% GHG free. So where people say it can't be done, we're already doing it. And uh, that gives us a lot of confidence to continue to move forward. Um, And so Utilizing battery storage as a key partner to the solar that's on our system and the bulk renewables that are on our system, uh, we see as an important pathway to decarbonizing the electric system. But on the gas side, you know, I run a large natural gas uh, delivery business and uh, we plan to transition to cleaner fuels to target gas delivery uh, for hard to electrify customer sectors. Uh, in other words, converting. Uh, Things that use even higher emitting sources like diesel and like oil and converting those to natural gas, which reduces emissions uh, where necessary in large industrial uh, processing, um, as well as supporting the ramp to building electrification. And then my favorite subject, and we can have a whole separate conversation about the role that EVs play uh, in the future of California and our grid.
0: Well, this is a separate question that I was just thinking about, but you mentioned reaching into the scope three um, emissions. What does it mean, you know, providing service to Silicon Valley, right? What does it mean in the location that you all are, you know, one of the epicenters of kind of the clean tech ecosystem? Does that, does that help? Does it in some way hurt that those, all those providers are there on your back door asking you for things to do? What does that, what does that mean for the, the way that you run the organization?
1: Oh, it is a privilege to serve Silicon Valley. Do not, I, I'm, I have an enviable uh, service area, having the privilege of serving some of the brightest minds in the world, and great companies um, who are very energy focused. So we can have great partnerships with them. Uh, I think it is all net positive. What we um, are able to do, and what I think the role of uh, technology plays, and these technology companies play is in automating peak demand uh, flattening. And I just think that is one of the biggest game changers as we decarbonize the economy. The most important thing is that we do it in an orchestrated way. And today there's um, many sub-optimized solutions that may in fact create a higher cost energy system because it was done In an unoptimized way. So I I fully believe that as as we work together and leverage technology faster for our customers, we can decarbonize the grid at the lowest societal cost, particularly by focusing on that peak demand on the in and in California for us. That's a very finite number of days. Today, it's about five days a year. You could imagine as temperatures rise, uh, maybe it goes to 20 days a year, but that is a small percentage of the year. The rest of the year, we have 40% excess supply every single day, even on peak, so there's these handful of days that require a different solution than we have offered in the past with big bulk central station power stations. We can leverage technology and these technologists who are as passionate as we are about finding the best unique solutions to serve that peak. Um, and so we're 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 just thrilled to be where we're located and we're fully leveraging those partnerships.
0: Well, let's talk about that that topic. So you know, I, I think there was quite a few record um, heat um, numbers, maybe I don't know if you'd say smash like we had in Oregon a couple of years ago, but broken um, and you all did narrowly miss outage disruptions. Um, I think it was about a week, week and a half ago. Um, I saw a lot of announcements from you know, demand side providers or DER distributed resources or storage companies. Um, what sort of role did those and other solutions play to really kind of narrowly miss, um, you know, outage on the hottest days of the year? So I I guess first congratulations for you and all the other operators that pulled that off and, and how'd you do it?
1: Well, I'll say um, there was no silver bullet except maybe there was one. I will, (laughs) I'll get to that in a second. There was one moment that a big uh, thing happened that really saved the day, but the week that week, We did see record-breaking demand and we watched the role that solar played during the day, which is terrific. And it really uh, serves a a large demand on a a day like that, especially when the sun is shining, it's hot, those things all go together. But that moment when the sun starts to set and people are still running their air conditioners is a moment we have not solved for. Mm. And so uh, battery the battery storage that we've added over three thousand megawatts of battery storage added to the system uh, definitely we've watched it show up it was it was uh, an important resource at the right time just not enough of it so I'm very bullish on both bulk and uh, vehicles as a storage resource uh, to supply those peak hours that is in my opinion the solution for those those hours as well as automating um, uh, residential air conditioning through smart thermostats, not the old air conditioning switches of old that we've had for decades, but smart thermostat management that is automated um, and invisible to customers. And here's the the cool thing about the, the smart thermostats with the, the right kind of algorithm to back it up. You can set a, a temperature that you want your house at and the, the, Information that that um, uh, algorithm can review is the speed that your home both cools and then heats so that you can see if a house is leaky, if you will, you're going to start their air conditioner later in the day. If a house is tight, then you're going to start that air conditioner earlier in the day so that we spread out that air compressor uh, demand, which is what drives the peak 100%. It's all driven by residential and small commercial air conditioning. So when we can automate thermostats across the service area, people won't even know that we had a peak event, especially when we have batteries and particularly EVs uh, as a backup. But I'll tell you what the state did, and they did a brilliant job, and it saved the day, and the Californians heard the call. But they, we actually used the emergency response system in the state uh, on that hottest and highest peak day I was watching the, the, it was climbing and the emergency response system was utilized. Very smart move on behalf of the state. And 2,500 megawatts came off the system in about 10 minutes. And that, what that was, what that represents to me is that number one, uh, the good hearts and generosity of Californians who took action when called. So the collective action of the people of California was impressive. But two, that should be automated. That should be invisible. Mm-hmm. And it gave me hope that we have enough dynamism in our demand that we can actually do that. And when you add electric vehicles in as mobile power plants, and when they're feeding back to the grid through bi-directional charging resources, um, that's going to make a, a huge difference. We have 6,600 megawatts of supply right now on our roads in my service area uh, with electric vehicles today. Not in 10 years from now, not in some forecast, but in actual numbers, 6,600 megawatts of potential capacity to deliver back to the grid if they were bi-directionally enabled. And so um, I just see that as a huge dynamic supply that has never been available to us. Before, so flex alerts. I pray and plan that they will be a thing of the past. Californians should not have to worry and should not have to respond to an emergency response. Uh, but I think they proved that it can be done. Now we just have to automate it.
0: Yeah. Well, congratulations. I know everybody was was nervous to see how that might might play out this summer in general, but but really great to see the demand resources the distributed resources, the storage come on and where you all still see some opportunity ahead because it's not like the challenge is going gonna, is gonna to go away for for meeting the, the peak demand.
1: Yeah. And Bryce, the one thing that I want everyone that listens to your podcast to know is that California does not have a problem because we have too much renewable energy. That is not the problem. And so it really irks me when people try and claim that California's clean energy ambitions are the problem. It's not. We just haven't fully leveraged technology to deal with a very finite problem, which is that handful of days that on peak people are running air conditioning and the sun has set. That's a finite problem to be solved. We should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Nobody should get nervous that we're going to not be able to have a clean energy system here in California. We can, we will, and PG&E is going to be a big part of making that happen.
0: Yeah, and and the catastrophic event that Texas had was really from so many generation resources tripping. Um, are you seeing that generation resources and heat days are generally performing reasonably well? Is, is there any reason to think that those would, would have some sort of issues or have they been hardened to, to kind of expect these these sort of weather conditions?
1: Yeah, I would say, you, I, you know, I've run power plants for a big bar, bulk of my career and traditional mm-hmm. fossil power plants. So I'm certainly not down on, um, the all the hard work that people at those plants do. They're my friends and, and former coworkers But the reality is they're not as um, they're not bulletproof, you know, they they're not 100% all the time. And though uh, I would say our our gas units in the state of California performed well last during that heat event, they yeah. definitely performed well, they have variables too. And just like we saw in Texas that the cold really is that hard? Top, can be, and it was there a tough time uh, if you haven't, you know, hardened your plants to deliver natural gas in the form of electricity. And so, I just think that we just need to solve the actual problem with the right solution. And in our case, it's a peak demand on a handful of days, um, and we just need to solve that problem. And as you mentioned, us being right in Silicon Valley, we've got all the smartest minds working with us. Uh, to solve that problem.
0: A series supporter of Grid Forward Chats is ITRON. ITRON provides utilities in more than 100 countries with advanced network, software metering, and sensors to help them automate their operations, improve reliability, and integrate diverse energy resources. Learn more about building tomorrow's active grid at ITRON.com. Well, let's... Turn the corner on another resiliency related topic. Um, It's sensitive, but I appreciate you being open to talk about this uh, because it's really just so important for the wider region and that's, um, how do we mitigate wildfire risk? So what kind of lessons are you all finding to run both a modern grid, uh, but also mitigate the potential impact of, of wildfire to communities?
1: Well, a couple things. First of all, um, this is definitely the greatest professional challenge I know my team members and and my coworkers and I have ever faced, because um, people should not be afraid when the wind blows. And they should not be afraid of their modern electric system not being able to keep them safe. And so we are reimagining it in, in the form of layers of protection. You know, I've learned a lot from our nuclear team down at Diablo Canyon uh, Nuclear Power Plant. Um, a nuclear unit, they, they will describe for you and, and my team would say that that is a, um, uh, a high risk asset. And so it has to be operated as such with what we call fail-safe layers of safety protection. So if something fails, you still have layers that protect as a, in addition to the original failure. And our nuclear units across the globe have performed extraordinarily well and they have such a mindset about safety. Our electric system needs that same mindset because what used to be maybe a reliability incident, if a, a, a tree hit a line, it is now a safety hazard to to people. And so it has now become a physical high-risk asset, and we have to reimagine it with that in mind. Now, the cool thing in my mind is that many of the things that we will do to make it fire resilient also make it more resilient in any kind of extreme weather, whether it's snow up in our Sierras or it's wildfire in our Sierras, undergrounding our lines as we have planned to do, will make it more resilient independent of uh, additional intensity to our weather patterns. But the distributed resources and microgrids, which are the wireless part of the solution, are also essential to both providing enough supply uh, on a hot summer day, but also combine to provide resilience in the event that we do have to de-energize lines to protect from safety in the interim, as we are burying the lines. So distributed resources, having uh, more wireless solutions, and then going underground with wires is is a, a really important combination. I will tell you the uh, the last thing I will say in our layers of product protection that exist today, because a lot of people will say to me, you know, Patty, you're undergrounding lines, but that's going to take a while. What about today? Today, we have instituted new technology that makes our power lines extraordinarily sensitive to a disruption. So, if a tree branch hits a line, it will de-energize in less than a tenth of a second. And we've watched our what we call our ignition intensity index uh, reduce dramatically. In fact, the number of acres burned for any number of ignition because they de-energize so quickly is down almost 90%. We've had ignitions, our ignition count is down uh, over 80% in the the areas where we have instituted our uh, enhanced power line safety settings. So technology has been a key enabler to us significantly de-risking the system today, but we know we need additional layers of protection. And I have a technology team who's working around the clock uh, partnering with the best and the brightest around the globe and at other utilities to find other and even additional layers of protection so we can think like nuclear operators to say we have layers of protection uh, so that we can fail safe.
0: Well, the deenergizing line example, I think, is fabulous, and I've seen some of those that research coming out of the lab. Um, so I like to categorize it as um, prevention and early detection. So prevention could be something like you know chemicals um that you put on plants right so they don't ignite um or and detection could be something like you know advanced weather stations and and uh, monitoring equipment what's some of that what's some of that toolkit that your team's starting to look into and, and maybe get excited about because i think a lot of it's reasonably new right it's application of some new solutions so what do you all kind of excited about maybe i know you can't mention probably everything but
1: i'll I'll give you a couple highlights um we're we're pretty excited we've installed since 2019 549 high definition cameras across our service area so we can see almost our entire service area with these high definition cameras 1347 weather stations so we are monitoring wind patterns fuel moisture levels precipitation any any of all number of weather temperatures uh, all across our service area. 1,347 weather stations since 2019. And, you know, to de-energize the line is great from a safety perspective, but from a customer perspective, it sucks because that means it's a power outage. And people having multiple power outages is very dissatisfying. So, we're we're working on two very important um, focus areas on that. Number one, using distributed resources as a resilience backup so that those interruptions are invisible. And we are working on making sure we have batteries, particularly in our highest risk customers, customers who are rely and live on medical equipment. We wanna make sure that they always have perfect power. And so we're building in resiliency solutions for, for customers like that. And doing partnerships with General Motors and Ford and Tesla on utilizing uh, Tesla Powerwalls as well as vehicles from Ford and GM as bi-directional power sources for people's homes. So we want to have resiliency solutions for customers so that we can de-energize when necessary to keep people safe, but that that's invisible to customers. And uh, that's a journey and we're we're on it. Um, We're making progress. Uh, But, uh, you know, if I was I am a customer and as a customer with my customer hat on, I'm dissatisfied with the reliability of our system. Uh, But we are squarely focused on uh, reducing the duration by having better outages, outage management resources, sectionalizing the grid and by having distributed resources as resiliency solutions for customers that are safe.
0: Well, you mentioned on-site resources. You mentioned sectionalization. I was going to ask a question about PSPS because we just had one here in Oregon. We had really crazy east winds blowing, and it was scary. Um, How how can we be as precise as possible with these solutions? I think you've covered a lot of it, but is there anything else you'd you'd mention?
1: Well, just on the sectionalizing devices and combined with these cameras and the weather stations, we can... We've got our entire service area, seventy thousand square miles, down to two thousand or um, yeah, two thousand um, uh, meter blocks, where we can see yeah. what's happening in those blocks. We can see um, precisely where we would need to do PSPS, and can shrink the population who are experiencing PSPSs. We've added twelve hundred and eighty-three sectionalizing devices to our system since. 2019, so we can shrink the number of customers impacted and really be precise uh, when we are executing a PSPS. And I'll tell you, when we look at our track record in 2019, uh, 2 million people experienced uh, a PSPS event in our service area. In 2020, we were down to about 800,000 customers experienced a PSPS event. In 2021, 80,000. Customers experienced a PSPS event. Dramatic improvement by the way we're designing the system and targeting when and where we have to do it. But I will say, any of your listeners who are PGE customers, it's the hardest um, thing to do to call a PSPS. Um, it, it's the antithesis of what we are all trained all our years as electric system operators. However, we will do it to keep you safe, and you have to know that the only reason we do it is because the conditions, and we know the conditions better than anyone in the world. We know when we have to pull that uh, tool out of the toolbox, uh, but it is definitely a tool of last resort.
0: Yeah, it's good to hear how the cha- how the quick evolution that, that you all are using it for. We've covered a lot around resiliency. The last question I wanted to just briefly touch on, if you want to Share, share on it briefly was I know you all put a line in the sand to try to underground 10,000 miles of wire and that is just to most folks kind of they can do the math because they know what it takes to underground a mile of of, uh, of wire. Um, what are you all learning there? How's that going? Is that um, obviously that's an expensive proposition. What, what's, what, would, what would your thoughts be on that?
1: Well, first is maybe not as expensive as you think. So I'll get to that in a second because that's a we've trained everyone to believe that it's expensive. I'll 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 give you a different perspective on that in just a second. But first, I'd love to thank our legislature for taking action. They saw, and it's it's very popular with the citizens of California. Over eighty percent of the people support undergrounding, um, and so our legislature took great action to um, uh, incent uh, utilities like ours to put together a 10-year plan. We've set the construct where we can make sure that we can utilize a 10-year plan. And why that's important is because that allows us to create the workforce and have the long-term contracts and that all saves money. When you can have a a longer-term plan, I say it all the time, you don't build a bridge one span at a time. You know, you have to have a project plan. And so 10,000 miles requires a project plan. But I'll tell you what is expensive. What is expensive is the insurance that my customers pay for today. What's a billion dollars a year in insurance that we pay for. Uh, What's expensive is $1.7 billion a year spent uh, on vegetation management for trees near wires. If we can bury those wires in those high fire threat areas, we can stop removing trees that are near the lines. It will improve both the beauty, but the resiliency for even conditions, not just fire, but snow and uh, extreme winds and other conditions. And so the total cost, when you think about the 99% risk reduction that you get from an underground line and the reliability improvements, the cost, the total cost over the lifetime actually ends up being the same or less than covered conductor um, and tree management and it just looks much more beautiful. So it's, it's the right solution for this time and it's not as expensive as people think, particularly with a 10-year plan in mind. And I will remind people, there is a reason why our entire gas system is underground, because it is in fact too dangerous above ground. So years and years and years ago, we buried tens and tens and tens of thousands of miles of gas pipe <laughs> underground. We're actually good at it. My company has done that. We have an entire workforce who buries gas lines every day and maintains them and keeps them safe. Um, This is uh, very much in the same uh, vein, and we have a lot of confidence that we can deliver this plan and really make the state both safer and, frankly, more beautiful.
0: Well, thanks for the thorough coverage on those topics. Maybe we can pivot a little bit. We just have a few more minutes. But to some really optimistic uh, trends in the industry, you mentioned the opportunity that electric vehicles can face um, as, a, as an aggregated grid resource. Um, I'm on a wait list. I can't get mine yet. Um, so I, I know you all are seeing about as fast of adoption as anywhere in the world. Um, what, what's your thoughts around the role that electric vehicles are going to play on the grid there and, and how you all interface them? I mean, I, I can clarify a few questions there, but EVs are really a huge opportunity for, for, for electric grid operators. And I'd love to know your thoughts around where that's all heading.
1: Well, you just opened Pandora's box because I'm all in <laughs> on EVs and I could not be more excited. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, is the grid ready? That's their first question. So if I get an EV, will the, you know, you've got flex alerts, Patty, how how can you deal with electric cars on those days? And this partnership with General Motors and Ford and then Tesla with their Powerwalls has really taught us a lot about the role that that supply resource can provide back to the grid. Uh, and we'll, you know, the, the OEMs will get through this supply chain constraint of the chips and, and they're getting more and more efficient with the use of lithium and lithium processing, which are the big bottlenecks right now. But they'll get through that and we'll have access to electric vehicles. And so, for example, in our service area, uh, one in every five electric vehicles sold in the nation are in PG&E service area. So we definitely, as you said, have the highest penetration in the country. Um, and so we can see the role that they play and how dynamic customers are, how responsive customers are to dynamic sin- signals on when to charge. And so right now we've set the pricing so that charging at night is the right time to charge. Uh, when I answer the question, "Is the grid ready?" I say, "Not only is the grid ready, the grid needs these electric vehicles both to charge during the day, and what I call fill up the belly of the duck—you know, the duck curve—raise that demand during the daytime, and we'll have to design uh, important pricing signals for customers to know that that's the right time to to charge their vehicle." so that then they can discharge their vehicle when that sun sets. And it's the most um, dynamic load source that has choice in when it actually pulls from demand. It's not like a refrigerator. A refrigerator and, and air conditioners, both. Air conditioners more dynamic than refrigerators, but a refrigerator, for example, it just uses energy all the time. And so there's, there's not much you can do about what time you're going to use your refrigerator, but you can decide what time to, to charge your vehicle. And that vehicle charging and then the resource back to the grid uh, is the answer for how we can actually raise the average load, average demand, and reduce the peak. And what that results in is a lower unit cost of energy. So it actually is the solution as long as we don't just go and build 40% above the current peak as an insurance policy, we have to learn to optimize and reduce the peak, raise the midpoint, and now you've more fully utilized all the assets that we have on the system, and that makes the whole system cheaper for everybody. So I just think it's the, the most important ingredient in the decarbonizing of our economy, and it has to be done in an orchestrated way so that people benefit the most. And we have the lowest societal cost to that decarbonized journey.
0: Great. Well, we're, we could have a whole session on that, but I'll actually reference uh, listeners back just a couple months ago to when we had some commissioners from the CPC and California energy commission on, and we pretty much spent our whole time on electric vehicles. So it's a great dialogue. So I got two more questions for you. Um, as a leader, uh, and you're one of the key leaders in our industry overall. But what drives you to do the work that you do and make the kind of impact that both you and your organization are having?
1: Wow. Well, you know, I, I think um, I am blessed to be in this role at this time. Um, I know a lot of people have a lot of questions about where we're headed, but it is very clear to me um, where we're headed and what the potential is. And that's what really brings me joy in my life to know that I'm using my own experience and my own um, capabilities to solve really tough problems uh, for people in a way that's going to make a huge difference in the world. And, and you know, I, I wish everyone could be so blessed as to have the opportunity that uh, the pg and team and I have to find our joy in serving the people of California by doing the hard things that need to be done.
0: And our last question. So I'm happy for you to take it where you want. Um, I think uh, often folks might uh, say that you know electric grid operators aren't the most innovative of of industries, and you could point to some figures that back that up as far as you know total expenditures um, of of income to R and D. But I think that's changing very rapidly, and I imagine you agree with me. So, um, what do you think? Um, that in the operation and leading of an electric grid utility, what do you think it looks like to embrace a new set of capabilities and operating paradigms and really have innovation at the core of the organization? What does that look like?
1: I think two things. One, it starts with a way of thinking, and we call it at pg and breakthrough thinking. And it is where we realize that the past is, does not define our future, and that what we know to be true today does not necessarily need to constrain us on what can be true in the future. Every great innovation was born by somebody stating the ambition before it was true. Think about the the Pfizer uh, team and the uh, vaccination for COVID. They, I, I had a chance to meet Albert Bourla, who is the CEO of Pfizer. And he said, he's, if he had said to his team, What would normally take eight years to find a vaccination? We're gonna do in six years. They would do it in a very incremental way. They would have stayed in their box and probably have missed the target. But when he said we need to do it in eight months, all the rules had to change. They like had to come at it from an entirely different direction. Eight months, it was a breakthrough idea, a breakthrough stand that he took that and it was so important, it needed to be done. I feel like that's happening at PG&E right now. We've taken a stand that catastrophic wildfires shall stop. We have taken a stand that all uh, people of California will have a, a carbon-free economy and they will prosper. That, those stands drive us to not be constrained by what was true in the past. And we believe that the, the truth is ours to create, the future is ours to create, and the future is right now at PG&E.
0: Patty, it's a pleasure. Hopefully folks are inspired. The the work you're doing is leading the industry. Um, we just really appreciate your leadership. Thanks for being on to, to talk with us about it.
1: My pleasure, Bryce. Great to be with you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Grid Forward Chats. If you're interested in Grid Forward membership, In our work to accelerate grid modernization and energy innovation, including the backlog of our podcast, visit us at gridforward.org. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app.